0: Welcome to The
1: Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada.
0: Now, here's your host, Dahani Jones.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Our guest for this episode is Next Level. And by that, I mean a couple of things. One, he's a huge success in his field with a ton of experience under his belt, and two, he is the managing director with the Next Level Fund at Morgan Stanley. This impact-focused private equity business focuses on early stage investments in women-led enterprises and enterprises with underrepresented founders. With over 20 years of direct investment and advisory experience across asset classes and sectors, Jason has a wealth of knowledge to share. Today, I'm gonna to talk to Jason all about the Next Level Fund, what he's learned from his decades of experience, and of course, the art of deal-making. Welcome, Jason Wood. You know, we've been friends for a long, long, long time, and I've seen you evolve and shift and change. And, but most importantly, stayed tried and true to the way that you have grown as an investor. And I'd love for our listeners to hear today just about a little bit of that philosophy and how you've grown into the person that you are today. So, you know, as a managing director with the Morgan Stanley Next Level Fund, tell everybody a little bit more about that investment vehicle and
0: about the fund. Absolutely. And uh, thank you very much for having me on. You're right. It's been a a long time to develop this friendship. So I appreciate you taking the time to have me on. And let me talk to people about what we're doing at at the Next Level Fund. So the fund is a uh, $50 million vehicle, uh, as you mentioned, that's focused on women and minority led businesses in the early stage space. So call it seed plus through series C. Financings in the the tech and tech enabled businesses that we've taken a look at over over time. Very excited to be a part of the effort. Uh, which was really born out of efforts led by Carla Harris and Alice Vilma through the Multicultural Innovation Lab, which is Morgan Stanley's own version of an accelerator that brings even earlier stage businesses from the point of the inception of businesses all the way to having them as functioning venture capital backable assets. So very excited that that's been happening since 2016, I believe is when they kicked that effort off. and, And we got the fund started about two years ago on behalf of the fund and the firm. Anytime you raise a fund, it's definitely a journey.
1: It's not as always as easy as one might think. And, you know, Carla is a fantastic leader and Alice, she's amazing as well. And I'm just thinking about as the fund came into its inception, how did you all imagine or reimagine or make efforts to make the Next Level Fund unique?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think their historical effort on empowering uh, women and minority-led businesses and, and providing a way to reduce the capital access gap really started through some of the research that they did years ago. And I think having the thought and the, the white papers around how they could drive capital in the hands of groups that really to that point hadn't received much attention and significantly less in terms of capital. And there's, you know, all the research, all the studies that point to less than 2% of the capital at this early stage being provided to, to women and minorities that are focused on tech and tech enabled businesses. I think their efforts really have been to shine a light on this space and not just call attention to it, but to actually provide capital and to help some of these businesses continue to grow. And I think that's been part of Carla's life work, also Alice's. And it's something that I got started on, I want to say 15 years ago, and I was at a parish capital and, and being sort of focused on that mission, as opposed to just sort of figuring out ways to invest capital, but actually having more of a, a mission focused bent on what we're trying to do and a real guiding light in terms of what we want to accomplish has been very rewarding in its own right. And so as we've started to develop this portfolio, as we started to meet more and more of these entrepreneurs who've just said, you know, we just haven't had a chance to be in the room with decision makers and, and giving them that opportunity, giving them that voice, whether we can make a capital investment or not, providing them with intros to other people that may be able to, to do the same thing. And so over the course of the last decade or so, you've seen the rise of more and more minority-led funds, more and more funds that are focused on this effort. And so being able to be a part of that ecosystem to contribute and to, uh, again, contribute capital to this ecosystem has been quite rewarding in its own right. Yeah, I'm
1: sure. And the tech-enabled startups and the tech world has just continued to evolve. It's amazing. As I think about it, Within our lifetime, there have been so many different iterations of technology and just really one of those quintessential moments was 2007 when the iPhone came out. I mean, just think about so many of the businesses that have essentially been enabled by just simply that platform, that tool, that piece of hardware. You mentioned your time at Parish and now your time with Next Level and working with the tech-enabled startups. What about this moment in time gets you really excited. You talked about the rewarding experience that you find from working with some of these founders and working with Carlin and working with Alice and seeing them flourish. What about it, about this technology in this specific moment in time gets you really excited?
0: Yeah, I think you've probably done a number of these discussions where people bring up AI and generative AI and ways that that's going to transform the way that we do business. But looking at all the adjacencies around that, looking at some of the businesses that pop up around that, not just as sort of an application layer above ChatGPT, but real innovations around the future of work related to AI and how it's going to impact the way that we show up at work, the way that future generations show up at work, I think is very exciting. There's just sort of no shortage of different ways that we can attack a lot of the problems that have developed over the last five to, to 10 years. And this as another tool in our sort of toolkit to to help manage that, to help grow, to help figure out solutions to problems that we may not have addressed in the past, anywhere from healthcare all the way through, like I said, future work is, is really exciting. So being able to have a generalist lens around these things, but also have access to experts in each of these subsectors has been. Pretty exciting as well. You can't have a conversation these days without moving into
1: and thinking about artificial intelligence. And some people, you know, their eyes get really big and start thinking about so many different ideas. And you talk about the future of work and you talk about how some of these adjacencies can add value to artificial intelligence. But I also try to think about what might be more challenging as a result of this AI driven world that people might be trying to solve for in the investment space. And what I mean by that is like, you know, so many different conversations I've had, people kind of go back to the way that people interact with one another. Sure, we have this technology on the side that allows us to interact in a more efficient manner, but, you know, the art of understanding people is essential, right? And we'll talk about later in terms of how you think about deal making. but technology is not necessarily going to help you get to know me that much better, right? I mean, I might be able to kind of go down the laundry list of all the information that I can source from the computer, but the in-face interaction is critical. So that's one of the things that I think that technology might contribute to, but we need to work on as investors. So what is one thing in this tech-enabled world, maybe near or adjacent to the area of AI that you think about? that is more challenging than just the technology itself when you think about investor,
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think to your point, technological advances sort of open up access points to more people more regularly, but you still have to walk through the door. You still have to shake hands. You still have to smile and say hi to the people that you're eventually going to do business with. And so thinking through the last couple of years of, you know, sort of a quick meeting, then a term sheet, then an investment into business, I think we take a slightly different approach and it's a little bit more old school. Our our process takes, call it eight to 12 weeks, and we're spending a lot of time with founders, spending a lot of time with their management teams, spending a lot of time with customers, just getting to know them. The investments that we make aren't, I mean, we'll talk about this, like you said, a little bit later. This is not just a deal. We're not just interacting to provide capital with a lot of these founders. Our goal is to get to know them. And our goal is to help them build large and sustainable businesses from a starting point of a sort of seed round to a a series C. It's Pretty exciting when you think about what actually still needs to happen in terms of building a management team and structuring things so that these companies are able to really effectively grow to reach the visualization of the actual founders that are starting these businesses. None of that can be done just through a screen. You have to be in the room with people, having those discussions, making introductions to other people. And look, it may start with a Zoom call, but the successful investments that we've been a part of always have a pretty huge component of in person interactions. We make it a point to get out to meet the management teams that we're going to invest in before before we pull the trigger there.
1: So does that mean that your day-to-day includes a lot of travel, a lot of those in-person meetings? It's... You know what is your day-to-day like?
0: Yeah, that's definitely picked up. And I think travel is going to continue to be a pretty heavy part of, of our schedule. And we're fortunate that we have really strong junior resources as well, who we can put into a room with founders who are able to speak the language and, and can represent our fund and our team very well. So that burden has been split up a little bit, but there is no substitute for sitting in a board meeting and talking to the other investors around the table face-to-face in a way that you, know, you just don't get when you're over a screen during the little pauses or or when everyone's sort of getting up to go grab some water or just walking out of the meeting and having quick conversations over coffee right afterwards. Those sorts of conversations are where a lot of this deal work gets done.
1: Have you uh, had any meetings yet on just on the airplane? You're like, look, just meet me at the airport and we're going to fly from New York and we're just going to go to Chicago. We're just going to
0: the meeting over that hour and 15 so odd flight. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, I'm certain. (laughs) I'm certain that as you and I continue to look at opportunities that that we will we will certainly have one or two of those just because. I actually have a running list on my phone of different
1: people. Whether it be capital allocators or it might be investors or it might just be entrepreneurs that I've met on the airplane CEOs and others, because I just find it fascinating. It's like out of all the people in the world, you're just sitting next to someone on the airplane. Why would you be next to them? And I think, in my opinion, I think that's one of the critical parts of deal making is understanding your surroundings, understanding like the people that are next to you. So when you think about your deal making skills, what is the key thing that you look towards? in deal-making
0: that gets you over the line? More recently, it's just been those interactions with people, the level of comfort, right? If someone has a great idea, they have a great business plan, they have a history of, of execution, um, so call it a second or a third time founder, there, there are certain parts of their personality that you can pick up on their drive, their willingness to keep engaged with the business, the way that they manage their uh, sort of direct reports. If they're the CEO or founder of a business, how they interact with the CTO, or maybe they are the CTO, how they interact with investors, the way that they're willing to give their time and how they direct those efforts. That's been a pretty huge key. I mean, we can all go through the numbers. There's some things, look, when you get new talent into your team and you're helping them to, to understand how to make an investment, you can teach them the math of it. That's the easy part. That's the running joke. You can always show someone how to build a model and what sort of sensitivities you need to build into that to get comfortable. It's more difficult at, at the early stages, right? Cause you're just gonna see that hockey stick of growth and figure out how they're going to get there. But actually spending time to help people walk through their vision of how they get from zero to hundred million million, zero to $10 million, it doesn't really matter what the benchmark is, but getting a better framework for their mental state, the way that they actually interact with the data that they've generated or that they've received is, is really telling. And so that's where we do spend a, a great amount of, of our time and sort of look back at past investments from other organizations that didn't quite work as well. You can sort of point to two or three conversations or two or three opportunities that you had to, to make a point in a board meeting where it didn't come up and you know that eventuality occurs. Those are the things that you regret, I think, a lot in the, in the deal making and, and making sure that you trust your gut a lot when you're spending time with people to better evaluate how they are as people before you evaluate how they are as business leaders and, and entrepreneurs. Is this how
1: some of your deal-making skills lift up underrepresented founders is by kind
0: of giving a lot of that knowledge to them through the process? I think it's a joint effort. I learn a lot from them every time we speak, right? But that is one of the things that we try to work through. Part of our job is to introduce these founders to our investors. So some of the larger corporates that have invested in our fund and making sure that they're prepared for those conversations, right? And then teaching them, you know, sort of, what these later stage businesses are expecting and and how to interact because enterprise sales is a pretty big component for uh, some of these companies that we work with at at an earlier stage. So it's not just making the introduction, it's preparing founders for what to expect when they get in the room, what to expect as they continue to develop a relationship and what these companies are eventually looking for for their suppliers and for their partners. That's one of the hardest things is actually getting in the room. Oh
1: yeah. And I think the second most difficult thing is when someone says yes, End the meeting and walk out the door. Oh, yeah. Because you already
0: got your answer. Take yes No for need an to answer. continue. Take yes for an answer. <laughs> There's always some level of understanding that you want to get behind the why, but you don't have to have that conversation immediately. You can take that victory and then you can work through the particulars later on. But yeah, in the room and to the yes and then leave. There's no reason to uh, prolong the discussions. <laughs> what's, the, what's the biggest deal-making success story? To come out of next level to this point or maybe one that you might just be the most proud of so honestly i think it's it's getting the the fund closed and huge credit to carla and to to alice for spending the time and and making the effort and the morgan stanley balance sheet as well for really contributing what is their life's work to getting this off the ground and to getting it established as not just a fund but as the beginnings Uh, of a firm that we can continue to grow multiple fund family and, and continuing to to expand our reach we're still a little bit early on the investment side. So there's 12 portfolio companies in all of them have been in the first or second year. So we're still working through them on on helping them grow. We do expect some pretty significant victories there. And we've got a, a couple of which you and I've sort of discussed on the side, but that that are going to grow and that are going to be quite successful. So I think the like I said, the, the biggest testament to uh, the effort that's been made so far was was getting the investors around the table that have a, a shared vision and starting the process of getting capital into the hands of a lot of these entrepreneurs. The last two years have been rough in terms of finding the companies to put the capital into, but also from a macro perspective, making sure that they have the tools and the support that they need to continue growing in what's been a pretty down market for early stage businesses. Continue to talk with uh, Jason
1: Wood from Next Level Fund, Morgan Stanley, about his deal making skills and the ability of him to bring his knowledge and network to so many of the different underrepresented founders and women within the industry, you have 20 years of direct investments, you know, advisory experience. I've known you a long, long time, right? You've worked across all asset classes and sectors, and I've got some advice from you for so many different of our conversations, but I'm sure you've gained a lot of knowledge from that experience. But if you want to go back in time and speak to your younger self, right? Jason Wood, I know from college and starting off in the world, what advice would you give him What's the best piece of advice you would give yourself and what's the best piece of advice that you've received on the topic of deal making that you m- might pass on to some of the founders that you
0: work with or just like keep for yourself? It's a combination of life advice but it applies to deal making it applies to advisory so it, everything that I've done since college and uh, I think it's short messages keep going so there are always roadblocks, always hurdles. There's always something that's going to be tossed in your way. If you're sort of focused and you have a mission behind what you're trying to do, you'll see it through at the end of the day if you just keep fighting for it. And so one of my mentors and and good friends is a guy named Aaron Lee Kong, and that is it's just a phrase that we go back and forth with. And I, I spoke to him when I was an intern at Citigroup. I mean, this is in '99, 2000, somewhere around there, and that was specifically what he said. I mean, we we're just sitting around. It's like, you know, the path isn't easy. Like investment banking as a junior analyst is, is pretty tough. Long hours, not a lot of credit, but you learn a lot, right? It's um, one of those sort of paid apprenticeship type roles where if you can absorb everything that some of the senior dealmakers are trying to teach you around networking, around understanding your industry, around perfecting your craft. You just sort of have to keep going and getting the reps. Put yourself in the best position to succeed by doing the best work that you can whenever you get an assignment and it was one of the things that was in i can't remember what book i was reading but it was just saying you know every opportunity you get uh, whether it's to be on the field or to be in the room make the most of it every chance because you never know when that opportunity is going to come you never know if it's going to be the last opportunity you get but if you do your best and you actually just continue on the path that you've, you've set up You'll be fine. You and I talked about this actually in one of the heads meetings. You don't want to take a detour off the highway of success. You want to keep on the path that you've set up and look, there are twists and turns, right? It's not going to be a straight shot, but you do want to take the, the fastest route to get there and sort of distractions and detours. They're just, it's not a, not a helpful use of, of your time. Not to say that you shouldn't have adventure in your life, but you can kind of control for that. And so thinking back through choices made and sort of the route taken, look, it's been exciting. It's been interesting. There were a couple of ways that I probably could have shortcut to get to where I'm at, but didn't need to. And I I think I'm pretty excited with the way things have turned out. Well, you've successfully navigated some amazing cities
1: and amazing challenges. And you know what? You didn't even need ways. true. Didn't even need ways. (laughs) Didn't even need ways, but you did rely upon other people that have supported and mentored you along the way. Are there other notes of advice that people have given you that have really stayed tried and true to your thinking and thought process?
0: All of them are around the same message. I mean, it starts when you're you're a kid and your parents just say you can do anything you put your mind to, right? If they keep reinforcing that and you keep living that, whether sports or in business or in life in general, like you just believe in yourself and you can sort of keep going that that's, really a lot of the advice and the advice I would give the advice that I get from time to time, because you hit lulls, right? There's always a down point. There's always some time when you question yourself or someone else questions you, you don't get the result that you want. But if you're still focused on this sort of mission aligned investment process or mission aligned life process, you can succeed. And that's just sort of the the perseverance and the tenacity around a lot of the things that we do. And um, I know you've seen this in your career, both athletically and as an entrepreneur. It's just, you've got to put one foot in front of the other and just keep pushing ahead. So in deal-making, you have to continue
1: pushing ahead. And we love deal-making on this show. So as we kind of start to get towards the end of our show and wrap things up, let's dive into the subject and get really into how you fine-tune your deal-making.
0: How do you like to break the ice when it comes of brokering a deal. It's a good question. I'd like to think that it's just my magnetic personality, but honestly <laughs>
1: I can feel it, Jason. I can feel you. You're drawing
0: me in, man. You're drawing me in. Look, I, I think i in, in the fortunate place that at this point, because we do have capital to deploy, I'm always, you know, a foot taller and more handsome when I walk into a room now than I was before, which I, I think is is very helpful. But honestly, it's just just being nice. To be fair, being a, a friendly person to talk to, being relatively engaging and allowing people to talk through what they want to talk to, making them feel like they're the most important person in the room whenever you you start that so that you afford them the respect and the, the opportunity to uh, to continue talking about what for most of these entrepreneurs is their life's mission. And if we're in the middle of introducing an entrepreneur to another capital provider, making sure that you have the warm intro and that you everyone in the room sort of understands why they're there so that there are no sort of cold intros. Everyone has an understanding of, of what they're there to accomplish. And look, a deal's made, a deal's not made. But the goal is to make sure that you network with the people and that you can connect them with someone else that may actually close that for them. But there are surprises along the way. They they happen all the time in deals. So how do you adapt to that moment? A couple of different ways. So there's the the investment discipline where there's something outside of the parameters that you're comfortable making an investment in, then you don't do it. There are bright lines that you sort of don't cross related to people or fraud or, or other instances where you know that you just, there's not something that you can do about it, right? There's broken deal cost for that one. You've, you've done the research and you've got to the right answer, which I guess is the positive outcome, right? You just, you sort of say no, and then you move on to the next one. And then there's the gray areas, which you have to make judgment calls. And I think that's what you get with the reps, the opportunity to say, this is a risk. We've identified it. We can help to mitigate it. We won't be surprised if this business goes down because of this, right? We've come up with ways that we believe we can help to solve this problem. And if those are unsuccessful, then this business will probably not be successful. Those are things that you can live with. The eyes wide open mistakes are are the ones where you just sort of say, we thought we could adjust. And if you can't, you can't. But you you wanna try and avoid things that are just bright and glaring and being able to trust your gut uh, on some of those is, is really a key. Yeah, you
1: know, They always say when you're young, you're blazing a trail. When you're older, you realize it was just a beaten path, right? And so things have happened before. And a lot of that information you can kind of source from books and other types of resources because it's it's important. And as you can see, I've got plenty of books that I draw upon for my own knowledge. You have books. <laughs> I, have, I have books and I've read most of them, at least the title, at least the title. So are there any books that you have found or resources that have been especially helpful
0: when it comes to deal making. There've been a couple. There's a newer one actually that's really interesting called Power Law. It sort of talks about the history of venture capital and things that were happening in the sort of late 70s early 80s around how deals were done and the network effects of early Silicon Valley, East Coast and West Coast venture capital which I found to be very interesting, very compelling just sort of reiterating some of the things that we discussed here today around the network and around interactions with people and making sure that you're putting people in a room or putting people in the best position to actually succeed in what they're trying to do. So I'd recommend that as as something to take a look at. Um, Most of the rest of the stuff that I read is around history. And so less relevant for this, but more interesting from the perspective of historical figures. Uh, One of the better ones I read was on Genghis Khan, which was super interesting and compelling, just sort of the force of will and sheer power uh, behind a lot of what he did, which, again, sort of harkens back to the the keep going mentality. Yeah, those are, you know, sort of the, the off the off the shelf quick ones.
1: Yeah. You know, um, a lot of times we refer now more towards like self-help books and other things, but there will always be so much more of a story when you're actually talking about you know historical figures that have accomplished some of these at the time seemingly insurmountable goals, and yet and still they walked in, they kept going. Right? I think about Roosevelt. I think about Lincoln. I, I I like to read some of those historical books, and I wish I read more. And I just love hearing some of those the stories that you you bring up. You know what what's the story of negotiations that you know you, you mentioned? Some of the advice that you get. But what's some of the negotiations that you're most proud of? Either someone that you worked with, you were able to navigate the waters, interpret it, and change it in a certain direction. Maybe someone didn't necessarily know why they were in the room, but you figured it out. What was a time of which you were most proud of a negotiation that you just got it done?
0: There have been a few. Most of them have been around convincing an employer that I should be in the room. And so this sort of goes back to when I was an analyst and getting my first job on Wall Street, getting a better understanding of, you know, what I needed to say and how to interview properly. The technical part you can sort of get through pretty easily, but sitting in a room and saying, "Hey, look, you have the resume, you've heard me talk about it. Are there any other areas that you'd like me to cover. Anything else that I can provide, any detail on my background or the level of perseverance that I have that would prove that I am a high quality analyst here at this firm and being able to convey my interests and and desire. And it was, you know, one of the more humbling and sort of calm experiences. And the interviewer was like, no, you've, you've done a great job very compelling and get back to the the hotel and you get the phone call that you you got the job that was super interesting from a business perspective and looking at deals that we've done recently i think the past year has been instrumental in terms of how we think about and how we negotiate valuation for some of these early stage companies and so that to me and i think probably more relevant to the conversation we're having has been a bit of a challenge but also relatively rewarding to try and walk through how we arrive at valuation numbers and for the entrepreneur, look, you want the biggest number that you can get. The problem is with restrained capital and the way that the market's been over the last year or so, it may be difficult for them to grow into the valuation that they want versus the valuation that they're at now based on the market, based on what we're seeing from other companies, based on what we actually expect their growth rate to be. So communicating a lower valuation to an entrepreneur and you know, telling them candidly, you should get a market check on this. This is what we think we can do, but you may be able to get something higher. And if you do, and they can provide the type of services and the type of support that you need, then certainly go with that, we're here, we can participate, but this is the level that we can lead at. And so being able to communicate that effectively and to be able to execute transactions at levels that we think are reasonable and that take the appropriate consideration for the risk that we're taking and provide upside for both us and for the entrepreneurs so that they can raise a larger round at a higher valuation later on has been probably the highlight of what we've been doing recently.
1: What about things that don't necessarily go your way and you know, was there a time that You wanted to redo or you wanted to fix the deal negotiation. And really, what did you learn from it?
0: Yeah. A lot of times you're negotiating with people who are not negotiating in good faith. And so when that happens and you have to walk away or you're forced to reconsider how you're going to engage, call it buyer, seller, whichever side of the table that you're on, I think you go back to sort of the first principles of what you're looking for with a transaction. And that's working with good people who have a vision that you believe that you can assist or that you believe can assist you and provide growth and some sort of financial return that you think is commensurate with the risk that you're taking. And if you find yourself in that situation, you can continue to negotiate in a way that, you believe is in the best faith that you're able to provide, or you can walk away. And I don't think there is shame in walking away or anything wrong with walking away from a negotiation where you don't think everything is, is on the level because this negotiation point, these discussions are the intro. This is the beginning. And if this is going to be a marriage and you're getting that sort of resistance and that sort of pushback or that level of lack of respect for you, for your institution, it's not going to get better. After that, this is sort of the highlight of where it's going to be. You want the relationship to develop, and you want the relationship to grow, but there is a very high likelihood that that's them at their best. So you want to be careful as you're engaging in situations like that that you're still staying true to to what it is that you want to get out of the interaction. They say uh, when people show you who they
1: are, believe them. Believe them. Exactly. Believe them, Jason. I wanted to say thank you for being here, and I'll just leave you with this last question, if you would, please. You know. Our podcast we always talk about these deals and this deal making mentality and the lessons learned so we always end the show by talking about meals and deals can you tell us the story of your favorite deal and celebratory meal right so it might be one and the same
0: but meals and deals favorite deal and where you ate favorite deal favorite deal so i have a, a couple of friends that are uh, and they grew up with me in finance and so favorite meal. I want to say this is in like 2005, 2006, but at Del Frisco's. And this was after I closed my first investment, actually The first deal with Parrish in a company called Fleischman's Vinegar. And so first principal investment that I made, I called my friends and we celebrate the victories. So we go to table at Del Frisco's, we hang out and it's just, you know, you eat the same thing every time, just a giant steak that you eat, have no business consuming, a really good bottle of wine, great conversation, and just a feeling like you've accomplished the thing that you wanted to do. And that that first one, the first time that got over the finish line was, it was remarkable. And it's just a feeling that you chase every time you go after it. And I enjoyed that piece as a personal celebration. There are so many others though, when your friends do great things and whether you're all, they're together. I mean, you could just get the news over the phone and cook something special at home. But like, you're, you're right. The the celebration and combining the food and the, the camaraderie around someone achieving something that's really of significance is, is fantastic. Well, Jason, you've uh, been the highlight of
1: my day and I appreciate all of the words of advice, the, the knowledge and and counsel that you've provided to me and then also those that are listening. So I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your time today and your expertise and and experience. And so thank
0: you again, Jason. My absolute pleasure, Mr. Jones. Thank you uh, very much for having me on and hello to all your listeners.
1: special thanks again to Jason Wood for joining us to discuss all the amazing things being done at the Next Level Fund. If you're enjoying The Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Dahani Jones and this has been The Pathfinders presented by Ansarana.